Well, good morning, everybody. Um, it's lovely to see so many of you out first thing on a Sunday morning. Very grateful to you for making your way down. And while the few stragglers are taking their seats, I might just do some quick housekeeping. Um, but to begin at the very beginning, I'd like to do an acknowledgement of country. We acknowledge the Ghana people are the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and pay respect to elders past, present and future. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. Now, as a rider to that, we're still in the dreary fag end of COVID. Hopefully the fag end of COVID. Um, so just please, social distancing whenever possible. We encourage the wearing of masks and ask you to follow directions given by the COVID marshals, venue staff and volunteers. And finally, moving to our author, Charlotte will of course be signing after um, our talk today. Now, I don't know if any of you noticed, but um, it's been kind of a big news week. And um, there was this little matter of the IPCC report, which um, our federal government has yet to even sort of acknowledge has dropped, but which contains news about uh, a biodiversity crisis. And specifically, the report has a section on Australia where it identifies uh, our alpine regions, the Jarrah ash and pine forests of West Australia's southwest and Tasmania's southeast, the kelp forests off the Tasmanian coast, whose coverage is diminished by 90%, and of course, the coral reefs of northern Queensland, which is the one that everybody knows about. These are stories which are really hard to tell because the mind blanks out in relation to them. So it was very exciting for me as a reader to encounter Charlotte's books. Her novels have, since 2020 and her first book was published, The Last Migration, grappled with precisely this issue. And indeed, I'll read you the first sentence of Charlotte's first literary novel, The Last Migrations. The animals are dying. Soon we will be alone here. That sense of finding a way to tell stories that would otherwise leave us gasping has been the signal achievement of Charlotte's short but fantastic career. It's the reason why people adore her books, even as they ask really difficult questions about our current predicament. So I think the best way to start is, Charlotte, would you be willing just to give us a bit of a reading from your new book, the new novel, Once There Were Wolves, to give you a little bit of a tuning fork sense of the way that Charlotte goes about her, her writerly business. Of course, I'd be happy to. Thank you so much for that amazing introduction, Geordie. Okay, so I just, am I loud enough? 
Just thought I would read a little bit, not the very first pages, but it's quite close to the start. Not long ago, not in the grand scheme of things, this forest was not small and sparse, but strong and bursting with life. Lush with rowan trees, aspen, birch, juniper and oak, it stretched itself across a vast swath of land, colouring Scotland's now bare hills, providing food and shelter to all manner of untamed thing. And within these roots and trunks and canopies, there ran wolves. Today, wolves once again walk upon this ground, which has not seen their kind in hundreds of years. Does something in their bodies remember this land as it remembers them? It knows them well. It has been waiting for them to wake it from its long slumber. The dark is heavy and their breathing is all around. The scent has changed. Still warm, earthy, but muskier now, which means there's fear in it, which means one of them is awake. Her golden eyes find just enough light to reflect. Easy, I bid her without words. She is wolf number six, the mother, and she watches me from her metal crate. Her pelt is pale as a winter sky. Her paws haven't known the feel of steel until now. I'd take that knowledge from her if I could. It's a cold knowing. Instinct tells me to try to soothe her with soft words or a tender touch, but it's my presence that scares her most, so I leave her be. I move lightly past the other crates to the back of the truck's container. The rolling doors hinges rasp as they let me free. My boots hit the ground with a crunch. An eerie world, this night place. A carpet of snow reaches up for the moon, glowing for her. Naked trees cast in silver, my breath making clouds. There's no more road for the truck, so we're on foot. We lift number six's container first. Niels and I taking a back corner each while Burley Evan carries the front on his own. Amelia, our vet, and the only local among us will remain here with the other two containers to keep watch. It's a little over half a mile to the pen and the snow is deep. The only sound Six makes is a soft panting that signals her distress. A loon calls, distinct and lovely. I wonder if it stirs her, that lonely cry in the night, a recognition of the same ancient call she makes. But if it does, then she doesn't reply in any way I can interpret. It seems to take an age to reach the pen, but eventually I make out its chain link boundary. We place Six's container inside the gate and head back for the other two animals. I don't like leaving her unguarded, but very few know where in the forest these pens are placed. Next, we carry male wolf number nine. He's a massive creature, so the second hike is harder than the first. The third wolf is a yearling female, number 13. She is Six's daughter and lighter than either, either of the adults. By the time we've carried 13 to the pen, it's nearly dawn and exhaustion has set into my bones, but there is excitement too and worry. Female number six and male number nine have never met. They are not from the same pack, but we are placing them in a pen together in the hopes they will decide they like each other. We need breeding pairs for this to work. It's just as likely they'll kill each other. We open the three containers and move out of the pen. Six, singularly conscious, doesn't move. Not until we retreat as far as we can without losing sight of them. She doesn't like the scent of us. Soon we see her lithe form rise and pad out onto the snow. She is nearly as white as the ground she walks so lightly upon. She too glows. A few seconds pass as she lifts her muzzle to smell the air, maybe taking note of the leather radio collar we have placed around her neck. And then, instead of exploring the new world, she lopes quickly to her daughter's container and lies beside it. It stirs something in me, something warm and fragile I've come to dread. There is danger here for me. Let's call her Ash, Evan says. 
Dawn burnishes the world from grey to golden, and as the sun rises, the other two animals stir from their drugged sleep. All three wolves emerge from their containers into the single acre of glittering forest. For now, it's all the space they'll be given, and it's not enough. I wish there didn't have to be fences at all. Turning back for the truck, I say, no names. She's number six. <laughs> Right, so we're in the highlands of Scotland in the near present. Inti Flynn, the voice that you're hearing there, is an Australian scientist who is involved in a project of rewilding. Now, this sounds like a paradox, and presumably there are many in the audience who are familiar with this notion, but I think we'd better just rewind for a second. Charlotte, could you tell us about the reintroduction of wolves into Yellowstone. Yes, so this was the, the precedent that I used as the kind of basis for my research and my inspiration. And it's an incredible project of, of ecological triumph. Um, in the 90s, in Yellowstone National Park in America, uh, the conservationists realised that the, the park was... Well, the ecosystem there was suffering terribly. Um, and that was because over the decades prior, um, humans had hunted to extinction, the wolves. And the wolves are crucial to the ecosystem because they're what's called a keystone species, which means that they have trickle-down effects on every other animal and living thing in their environment. So we need, we need apex predators in our environments. Um, and by killing off the wolves, it had allowed the herbivore population to kind of run rife um, and not allow any of the shoots of plants and trees to grow, which then affects all the other animals. It affects the water tables, the birds, everything. So by re courageously reintroducing wolves to this, to this park against all um, pushback from the locals, you know, there was uproar about it at the time and it took them many years to get the project uh, through Parliament uh, because the locals were a heavily kind of uh, farming population and hunting population and they were f fearful that the, the return of this predator would have a terrible impact on their livestock. So that was the pushback. But the conservationists managed to, to get this project happening and it has been a huge success. The park has come back to life um, and the stories of the wolves themselves have been just extraordinary, so beautiful. The, the unique personalities of these wolves are, are just kind of staggering. And I knew that when I was reading these stories of courage and loyalty and you know, love between these wolves. I needed to create a sense of uniqueness in my own wolves. I wanted them to be characters in their own right um, that we would, you know, wouldn't be able to help fully in love with, so. <laughs> well, um, when Inti says at the end of that section, there's not enough space, she could be, you know, um, speaking about what's happened on the edges of Yellowstone in recent years, where the laws have been changed so that any wolf that leaves its boundaries is um, open for hunting. And the governor of Montana only last week um, chased a mountain lion up a tree with his dogs and shot it, even though it was tagged 
as part of the park process, and a number of wolves have been um, shot just outside the borders of Yellowstone. But I say that as background because what Inti is doing in the context of the Highlands in Scotland, and I'm speaking as the son of a Scot whose family have um, had land in the Angus Glens for generations, and we um, went out of our way to kill any animal that was going to get in the way of our beloved and valuable grouse. So it is that the wildcats of the Highland are down to their last few pairs. So it is that most of the birds of prey in the Highlands are on the sly being poisoned or shot. So your novel has to grapple with not just the logistics, the difficult science of reintroducing an apex predator into an environment, but also the complex matrices of um, culture and history and human resistance. Can you tell us a bit about what Inti discovers? Because she's not, she doesn't play well with others, to be <laughs> honest. No, she's, she's, she's got a burden of anger that she brings with her to this place. And I think that it causes her to, to approach this project and the locals in Scotland with, with a judgment that perhaps becomes a bit of a problem and, and she kind of gets in her own way. But what she's facing there is a community of people who, reasonably so, are very, very worried that uh, the return of the predator will, will cause immense financial pressure on an already very difficult life. Um, and this is a place that... <sighs> Most of the places in Scotland have their own individual stories about the last wolf of Scotland. They talk with pride about having killed the last wolves. Um, and so it kind of, I think, you know, their ancestors have hunted these monsters and burned the forests in order to, to smoke out the wolves. And it's an ecosystem in crisis. That's not to say everyone in Scotland is like that. Scotland's actually an incredibly progressive country in terms of its rewilding efforts. But the in the Highlands, there is a it's densely populated with farming, um, and and they've had things like the sea eagles be brought back in. And I listened to farmers talk about the fact that when the sea eagles returned, they all started eating the lambs, and they believe they deeply believe that the return of wolves to that place will be the death of farming in the highlands. And farming is the way that they um, survive. It's their way of life. So it's a complex issue that Inti is kind of grappling with. She feels as though she's come here to help, but she's being met with terrible uh, anger and fear. So she's kind of... She's having to not just do her project, but also... I guess try and convince people that in fact wolves are not the monsters we think they are, that it may be people who are the monsters. <laughs> the uh, extraordinary thing about Inti and before her in the last migrations, which is centred around a woman called Franny Stone, is that they're both incredibly fierce women. There's something a little bit beyond the normal with them. And I wanted to ask you about this sense that, that look, there are men in these novels who are drawn beautifully across a broad spectrum from being decent guys to absolute monsters. 
but none of them have the kind of ferocity <laughs> of spirit of these women. And without wanting to get into kind of gender essentialism, it seemed to me that you were saying that there was some means of access that women had to crossing borders between us and the wild creatures that the men weren't quite so capable of achieving. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's quite an interesting way to look at it. I th maybe I automatically write fierce women because I'm not saying I'm a fierce woman. I wish I could be a fierce woman. I think there is a bit of wish for fulfilment in there for me. I, I like the idea of writing characters who can push out into a space that I am perhaps not brave enough to go myself. And and that connection with nature and, and wildlife just feels kind of essential to me at the moment. Um, I, and I think maybe there is, I, as I was sort of writing Wolves and, and trying to understand why I was writing about the killing of wolves and violence against women in the same story and, and how those two things fit into the same story, there seemed to be... They were connected by a sense of fierce, scrappy fighting for their lives. You know, there's a sense that this is what women do and this is what animals do. Uh, and also, I think it boiled down to empathy and a lack of empathy and what that creates, what that causes us to become and, and why we are so capable of causing harm both to each other and to the natural world. And I was trying to unpick this and understand it and I think it comes back to a sense of being able to connect with our nurturing side and how perhaps women are more easily able to do that. Um, I don't know if that's an incorrect statement, but I think if we're able to connect in with that nurturing side, we're going to find it much easier to not only heal ourselves, but heal the planet. Mm. No, that, that does come out. So Inti um, obviously gets everyone's noses out of joint because of her inability to play well with others. But her ferocity is emerges out of a great vulnerability as well, as it does with Franny Stone in The Last Migrations. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about um, uh, mirror touch synesthesia, have I got that right? Yes, yeah, so this is a rare and um, very real condition that Inti uh, suffers from. It's a neurological thing where her brain tells her that any sensation she witnesses, uh, she's felt that herself. So if I have that and I see Geordie get punched in the face, I'm going to feel a punch in the face physically. So it's this really strange and difficult thing that she has to live with. It's, it's extreme empathy in a way. It connects her with people in a way that most of us are not connected. And I th I, we meet her as a child and she's kind of embracing this condition as a gift, a gift of connection and empathy and intimacy with other people. But as uh, she grows up and she kind of goes through the things that we all go through in life, she starts to realise that this is actually quite a dangerous condition to live with and it makes her extremely vulnerable. And so when we meet her as an adult, she has closed herself off to people, to this 
uh, connection that she once embraced. She's, she, can't, she can no longer see the best in people. She's got no more forgiveness for our cruelty. Um, but, of course, the story needed to be... I think she was giving voice to some of the anger I was feeling around the things that I was writing about. So she's, that's, you know, that's why she's this ferocious kind of... <laughs> it was a bit of a joy, actually, to write a female character full of rage and just unleashing that <laughs> on people. But, of course, I needed to take her into a gentler space and a healing space and a peaceful space um, and, a, and a place where she could really, I guess, reconnect with with that empathy that she has and the connection that her mirror touch allows her to have. Well, this sense of um, difficulty that she faces in this Highland community is only um, made manifest when uh, attacks on livestock start to occur and then I'm really wary of getting out ahead of myself and, and providing spoilers here. <laughs> but it looks like there might be um, a, uh, an animal who is preying on humans as well. But here is the bit where Inti is not being wild. She is the scientist. She is intensely rational. And that sense of the difficulty of dealing with human fear seems to be at the heart of both the last migration and once there were wolves. You talk a little bit about the tension between the science and, and what's deep inside of us, those ancient fears. Yeah, that's, yeah, sure. I guess that's the dichotomy between, in her character, she's, she's got this scientific rational side and she also has this side that can recognise the infinite mystery of wolves and how beautiful that is. And I think, I mean, I read a review once with a line that really stuck with me because it, I just thought it was so interesting. It said that between documentary and fairy tale lives this story. And I love that because there's, I, I love that it kind of acknowledges the realism and, you know, I did a lot of research into the science of all this stuff and really tried to kind of give it a sense of authenticity. But I also really like being able to allow for the magic in the world and the, the beauty of what we don't understand and there is so much of that in the animal kingdom and and there's so much of that in the way that we feel about the animal kingdom we i think we have a profound connection to the animals even animals that we've never seen before that's why the idea in the last migration of of living on a planet without animals is so heartbreaking you know it's an existential crisis the idea of what what we would be if we were here alone and and how that would feel emotionally not just you know what it would do to our the way that we live um so i think inti has to sort of yeah she's it's a really difficult thing to grapple with with the reality that she knows and the infinite mystery that she doesn't know um and and, and i think that's why she sort of struggles to understand people at the start of this book. She can't make sense of this anger towards animals or the the cruelty that people can kind of show to animals. Like, it just doesn't... It doesn't compute for her. And it doesn't compute for me either. I think there must be some sort of 
compartmentalizing that happens that allows us to do that? Or, or like I said, it's the lack of empathy that we can... Well, it felt to me like um, what was implicit, there was a, a, something implicit in gender differentiated mm. responses. So what's going on correspondingly as the community is up in arms about this series of attacks is that Inti starting to get to know the community and to know that there are some men within it who are violent towards other humans and particularly to women in that community. So that sense of gendered violence seems to be um, at, at the heart of both sides of the equation. The sense of masculine violence towards the natural world, was that something that you um, started out from or through your kind of writing you came <laughs> to kind of understand that was the essential difference? Well, I just was struck... Uh, when I was doing my, my research um, and learning about the slaughter of wolves, it's not... <laughs> it's the men who go out and hunt them. I don't know. There's, it, it didn't seem... I wasn't coming across any... And they exist, of course, but, I, you know, it, male hunters far outweigh female hunters. And I just... I don't know. It seemed... In the news at the time, we were being inundated by this male violence against women crisis in this country. A woman a week is murdered. We all know that statistic. Um, and it just felt like I was seeing the same thing happening to the natural world. And I, I don't know, it just it felt like a really kind of strong mirror in a way. And I, I don't know if there's an answer to that or a reason for that, but... It's something that I, I suppose I couldn't ignore. Well, when we go backwards in time to your first novel, The Last Migrations is actually set, I'd say, closer to a slightly more um, speculative near future mm. in which the kind of species extinction that in Once There Were Wolves seems to be something that is coming towards us. In the first book, it's already happened. So that seemed to be to be less a book about violence turned outwards than dealing with the grief yes. of loss and, and almost a violence turned inwards in the case mm. of the narrator, Franny Stone. I wondered, is it um, a different method to try and write about climate grief in that way? Because what we're really talking about, if the natural world gives us our myth kitty, our image larder, our symbolic register to describe internal states, to basically be a reflection of who we are internally, does that not mean that when you've got a planet with no wild animals left, you've lost, uh, you've impoverished your own kind of inner self, as well, us as a species? Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> you put that so well, Jody. I think he's kind of understanding these books better than I do. <laughs> yeah, yes. It, the Last Migration came from a place of sadness and grief, and it was coping with the species loss that we're already seeing. Um, you know, so many of our animals over the last 50 years have become extinct I think it's nearly 80% now of our wild animals. And I just was struck by, yeah, what, what would become of us, what would be missing from our lives when we lose those things. 
there is such a it's such an essential thing to be to know that there is wildness out there that we could rejoin one day and i think that's the idea of rewilding it's it's about finding balance and harmony in a wild space and so rewilding ourselves really means finding that connection again with the wild creatures and places that we share this world with and that are so kind of beloved to us and and yet the things that we are allowing to to die and to perish and there's a real there's a very strange kind of contradiction in that and I think it's because the grief is so profound that we don't let ourselves look at it or talk about it it's much easier to switch off and become apathetic about it because it feels too big too enormous we don't know how to kind of face it or stop it and so I wanted to write something that looked at that in a more extreme way but that also removed us from the center of all things that looked at the loss of animals purely because... looked at the loss of them as a tragedy because they belong here and they deserve to be here just as much as we do. Not not because of any kind of impact that they were going to have on our food chain, just because they're beautiful and we would miss them so terribly. So that's what that book is about, whereas Once There Were Wolves is is more of a, I guess it's more of an uh, an enraged <laughs> call to arms in a way. Like it's, it's, it's wanting to step up and fight for what we still have rather than kind of, I suppose, lie down and, and grieve the things that we've lost. So there's a problem here, isn't there? Um, I think Wittgenstein somewhere says, um, if a lion could talk, we could not understand it. And I, I'm no philosopher, but uh, it seems to me what he's saying is the ontological grounds of animal understanding of the world are so alien to us that there's no active translation that we can make. But here you are, Charlotte, you're writing these amazing novels which essentially have to um, circle around human language, human interaction, human society and culture. So how do you make that bridge between talking about humans um, but in such a way that it admits something of the animal world, tries to understand something of that radical difference? How do you incorporate it? I, I think it just comes down to your, your main characters and if I've done my job you will love these main characters and you will love what they love. And what they love are these animals. So with Franny from The Last Migration, it's the Arctic terns. And, you know, this is a this is kind of a, a bird that perhaps we don't all know. About. It's not a famous bird, but it's the bird with the longest migration of any animal in the world. It travels from the Arctic to the Antarctic and back again every year. And so over the course of its life, it will travel the equivalent distance of to the moon and back three times. So it's this small, innocuous little bird and it has this incredible, courageous flight that it goes on. And we're making that flight harder and harder for it every single year. The distance is becoming longer every year. The, uh, the food that the, the turn finds on the way is... Um, decreasing rapidly 
Uh, there's colonies of terns all over the world that have not produced uh, chicks in decades. You know, it's, it's just a dire situation. Um, and I, I think it's, it's hard to kind of make... We all care about our animals and those creatures, but you've got to bring them to life in a way, in, in a novel, in order to really let us kind of feel that grief and, 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 and treat them as the heroes of the novel. And I think the only way I was able to do that was just to really have Franny just... I, I, she has to follow these birds for her own survival. Yeah, there's a very strong, yeah. very human reason that she's willing to kind of undertake this yeah. mission to follow the last migration of the Arctic turn from, from the north to the, yeah. the deep south. And it's tied in with grief and love and survival and courage and her own redemptive arc. And so I think it's just connecting connecting all of her feelings and placing them in this beautiful little bird that has this amazing journey that allows the reader to kind of fall in love with the bird too. And the same with the, the wolves. I don't think... I mean, I didn't have to make anything up about wolves. They are unbelievably amazing, <laughs> their stories. If you read about the real wolves of Yellowstone, they're, it's like watching any blockbuster movie, you know, they're epic kind of fights for survival and sacrifice and looking after each other. They're really quite beautiful stories and so just giving them voice is enough to kind of allow us access to really feel though that animal nature. Well, in Once There Were Wolves, even more strongly than the last migration, the sense I got as a reader was of an impeccably rendered psychological thriller. And this was fascinating to me because I knew that underneath there was obviously all of this other um, more philosophically grounded, more ecologically urgent work going on as well. I wanted to ask you about the kind of containers, the fictional containers you build for your stories. Um, because it seems like they're generated to be able to hold amazing amounts of kind of um, electrical kind <laughs> of material. So that sense of like, did you make a conscious decision at some point to be able to tell these dark, difficult, diffuse stories about creatures who are radically other to us? I must nonetheless find narratives which people understand and can embed themselves in, be engaged by and drawn on by? I don't think it was a conscious choice. I think I naturally tend to write... Uh, I mean, I, I started writing as a teen fantasy writer. So I come from a background of having high stakes and uh, plot-driven stories. So it, was, it felt quite natural for me to kind of have... Uh, a murder mystery, but, you know, have it be about more than the murder mystery. I think it's important to tell stories that are about um, kind of profound, important themes need to also be really good stories. They need to make you want to keep reading and turn the page and find out what happened, what's happened. So, you know, you have to embed uh, tension and 
mysteries and I love using uh, multiple timelines, nonlinear structure uh, to kind of create more tension and to, to, to build towards a sense of catharsis. I mean, it just makes sense to me to have those kind of genre tools because they work so well. You know, they, we use them for a reason. They make people... They're enjoyable, they're fun, they, they make you want to kind of keep reading. Um, and so to use that alongside, I guess, something that's more, more thought-provoking, um, more difficult to kind of swallow, uh, it makes it... You, I, I don't think you can write a book about just species loss without using other elements because it would just be so horrible <laughs> to read. <laughs> it would be really upsetting. So I think you've got to give you've got to give your reader hope, laughter, enjoyment, excitement uh, to to off offset that kind of deep harrowing <laughs> sadness. <laughs> I'm I'm really conscious that Maybe I'm misrepresenting something here because we keep on talking about the animals as if they're over there and we're over here. But one of the most um, affecting and frightening aspects of Once There Were Wolves was the degree to which the men in particular were capable of an animalistic violence that reminded me that we are we are the, the most dangerous animal of all. In fact, I'll refer you back to the epigraph of Once There Were Wolves, <laughs> which is that line from Angela Carter, which is entirely fled from my head. Can you remember it? Yes, it's one beast and only one howls in the woods by nights. <laughs> so you tell us a little bit about man as the most dangerous animal in your books? Sure, yes. So... I mean, this is what I was struck by, um, and we've touched a bit on it, but the, I suppose it, it, simply put, when you look at wolves versus people, the violence that we're capable far, far outstrips what wolves um, are capable of. And, you know, they, they kind of exist in... I was surprised to find out that it's a matriarchal society, so wolves are not... Um, the aggressive, dominant creatures that we perceive them to be um, and that we've made them out to be in stories and fairy tales. In fact, the leader of a wolf pack is the breeding female and the breeding male is just after her. And what makes them the leaders of the pack is their ability to not only have pups but to bind their packs with cohesion, cooperation, loyalty. Um, to not allow for there to be sort of that that fight for dominance that that we we assume um, exists within wolves. So it's just I don't know learning about these creatures and kind of understanding that in fact they're very shy, gentle, family-oriented creatures who f very frightened of people, um, and in fact there have been almost no attacks on humans in all of history. Like it's just this weird thing that doesn't happen, and yet we've kind of turned it into mythology. Um, and then you look at the way that humans treat each other and it's just really obvious. I mean, it, well, yeah, we're so much more violent than they are. And I don't know why that is, but I think 
maybe it's because in a way we don't have to uh, we've lo- I think we've lost our wildness and in fact it's the wildness that kind of allows us to find balance and and harmonize with the other creatures on, in in the world uh, I mean, it seems counterintuitive to say that the wildness within us actually makes us less violent, but I think, I think it's true. I wonder whether anyone in the audience is familiar with um, the, animal, the medieval animal trials where courts of law, civil and ecclesiastical, would, would, would um, try wolves for crimes, bears for crimes. Uh, I'm suddenly thinking in relation <laughs> to what you're saying... That, that perhaps it's, it's just been us all along. You I know. think so. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yeah. But also, I mean, presumably we're also speaking to a kind of certain atavisms. I don't know about all of you, but, you know, I grew up in country New South Wales. If I came across an eight-foot-long King Brown, you know, in the garden, there was something so lizard brain in my response. It was absolute terror, that sense of danger, and it blocked out every other thought. And yet our success as a species, um, technologically and in the way that we've managed to kind of overcome our position as being, you know, we are meat as well as, as being in charge, you know, apex predators ourselves, is the problem that we've never gotten rid of the atavism even as we've become the most dangerously successful species on Earth. It's not being able to let go of those old fears that's really ruining us now. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good way to put it. We, I think we kill the things we're frightened of, don't we? And that's each other as well as the animals. <laughs> There's a, um, one aspect of the novels that I haven't drawn on enough, and that is they're intensely filmic quality, their visual grammar. These are books that you see as much as read. And it occurs to me that this may well have something to do with the many years you spent in um, film and script development. Can you tell us about the difference between writing with uh, a screen in mind and writing for the page? Sure, yeah. So, uh, So I wrote novels first and then I came to a point in my life where I just wanted to... I wanted to learn story craft. I wanted to understand better how to um, tell these stories. So I went and I did um, two degrees in screenwriting and that was... uh, just changed everything for me. It really... It made a huge, huge difference to my my novel writing. And I think that's because it, it helped... It taught me about how to structure stories, how to transform characters, how to explore theme using genre, um, really kind of good core storytelling craft. Um, But it also teaches you how to think about what you're seeing on the page, what you're seeing in a scene, how to tell things with brevity and simplicity. And that can be very powerful in prose writing as well. So, you know, I, I... I think I still am a little bit, but I was a terrible overwriter, <laughs> just way too many adjectives. And so screenwriting actually kind of teaches you that muscle of how can I tell this in the shortest possible way? And when you're giving, say, one adjective <laughs> instead of five, 
it immediately evokes much clearer visual sense in your mind. So, I mean, that's the simple way to explain, um, you know, how to write something visually. You're, you're choosing, you're not giving a huge overly kind of descriptive scene. You choose your key kind of things. And in fact, that allows us to imagine what we're seeing much, much, much more clearly. Um, and I think, yeah, screenwriting was just a really, it just it just really helps me think about how to kind of I mean I don't I don't think I write in terms of this will be a film and we will be watching it but you still want to especially with nature writing you want to be in those places you want to feel them you want to smell them well, and, of course, and the Highlands yeah. is one of the great characters of once exactly. there were you get that absolute full spectrum sensoria of what the forest is like yes. what the heather is like it's that's yeah absolutely I, I get you there but it occurs to me as you're speaking and perhaps you've already answered this question um, that you could have if you were developing as you've described to us uh, a consciousness, an intense, urgent sense of ecological predicament. You could have just turned to activism, you could have written non-fiction, <laughs> and yet this was the form you found. Um, and so, I guess, was it that you were always a creative writer who just became, you know, kind of animated by these questions, or whether it was... The, ecological urgency that drove you to find the ideal means of transmission of that urgency? I think it's the former. I, I'm a storyteller, I'm a writer, I write fiction, I love it. It's what kind of gives me meaning in my life. And then all of a sudden I felt this huge shift in who I was, what I cared about, suddenly you know, I went from writing these kind of really fun, epic fantasy stories to this really... I mean, when I look back on it, it's a massive turnaround. It's a massive shift in what I was kind of writing about. And I think I've always had a rule that I write the book I want to read. I write about the things that I'm passionate about. And so when I was younger, I wanted to write about adventures and escapism. I wanted to live big, live kind of boldly and do all the things that I couldn't do from my bedroom. So that's why I wrote epic fantasy fun. <laughs> and then something shifted and I just became very aware of what was happening around me in the world and I couldn't ignore it anymore and I felt profoundly impacted by it. And so, of course, that's what I started to write about because it's what I care about, it's what I'm passionate about, it's what I feel urgent about. And I guess the thing about novels is that they they do have a lot of power to connect people to an issue in a way that perhaps a non-fiction book doesn't because they allow us to connect with our emotional side they they give us someone to care about and love about in order to allow us to access that deeper issue. And I guess they also give us the space to kind of grapple with how we feel about an issue. They give us time to kind of feel those, those problems and, and come to terms with how, you know, we can kind of 
move forward with them. I think there is something to be said for novels changing the world. Uh, I'm entirely with you. And, and Charlotte's novels have proved positive of this because oh, they... I, I don't, <laughs> I'm not saying mine are going to change the no, world. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely true because, you know, we know what it's like. We pick up a work of um, really good, solid, chewy non-fiction on a subject like this. Uh, and it tends to be kind of this side good, this side bad. But in Charlotte's novels, what you're getting is, particularly in the first to last migration, um, the narrator finds herself on a fishing trawler, um, moving through seas that are almost entirely depopulated, looking for that last golden catch to fill the nets. And, um, you know, Franny is an ecologically-minded, earnest young woman, and she is disabused at various points by these hard-nosed fisher folk about kind of like who's doing it tough, why people are motivated by what they're doing. And in Once There Were Wolves, that is true of the Highland communities as well. And one of the joys of your story is the way that Inti does become integrated in the community. She ends up sitting in a little shop drinking wine and knitting with all of the old local grannies and learning about the deep history of, of, of the town. So, yes, you have, man, made an argument for the novel in your oh, book. Thank you. Look, we're almost... Um, uh, well, are we? Yes, I think we're almost ready for questions. So if you would like to come up to the microphone, you are so welcome. Don't be shy. That was fast. Well done. <laughs> Hello. Um, I've got a question about um, a comparison between wolves and dingoes and if you've had any opportunity to explore that. Well, yeah. I mean, it's amazing. The, the comparison is, is incredible. I, you can actually look at a photo of a long dingo fence that goes down through New South Wales and on... The side of the fence where the farms are, it's dry, dusty, barren. On the side where the dingoes live, it is lush and vibrant and green. So the exact same thing is happening here. We need our apex predators, which is our dingo, to move along the overpopulated kangaroos and the deer that are eating all the tree shoots and plants. Um, but we look at them as a problem for our farming, so we shoot them. Mm. It's, we're in crisis, and as Geordie opened the session by saying we have a biodiversity crisis, and the, the, the last thing you do in a biodiversity crisis is get rid of your predators. They're more crucial than any other part of the ecosystem. Mm. So we've got to save our dingoes. <laughs> One reason I bought your book was because I was so inspired by what happened in Yellowstone and I'm just wondering if Rick McIntyre's books about wolves in Yellowstone and Sophie Judge's wonderful podcasts called The Wolves. I haven't, I haven't read Sophie's, uh, listened to Sophie's podcast, but I definitely read Rick's books, yeah. Um, so he tells these amazing stories about uh, particular wolves uh, one of them is, I think it's wolf number five and then there's wolf number 31. Uh, and he he just kind of... He was uh, one of the people who worked on the Yellowstone project and he tells these stories of the wolves with... Uh, I mean, they they like people in these books. They're just fabulous, epic stories of survival and 
yeah, reading about those kind of really brought brought to life the wolves for me in a way that I hadn't, yeah, ha known that they could be. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm a researcher in this area. Oh, wow. But I, I wasn't familiar with your work, so it's been absolutely fascinating. I'm really looking forward to reading the books. Thank you. But I just wanted to ask you a question. Uh, Geordie mentioned the philosophical questions and Wittgenstein and so on, but there's also um, a field of theory, eco-feminist theory, and a particular, in particular Val Plumwood, an eco-feminist philosopher in Australia that hasn't been talked about today. And I was just interested, because um, feminist theory can often get overlooked, and I just wasn't sure if that's what was happening or if, you know, just hadn't been covered for other reasons. So I wonder if you had any comment on that that field and particularly some of the issues that Val Plumwood has engaged with in her work? I, I mean, look, let me just say, I am not an academic. <laughs> I don't know much about any kind of theories. <laughs> I just write with a real sense of uh, my own experience and my own kind of uh, perspective on the world. But that sounds excellent, and I would love to talk to you about that maybe after the session. <laughs> you can fill me in. Jordy, Jordy looks as if he knows about it. Yes, go. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that um, I, I was trying to refer to Val today when I talked about um, us being meat. So those of you who don't know Val Plumwood's work, she's a quite extraordinary woman who took herself out um, kayaking uh, in the top end not at the right time of year or under the right conditions and met a very large crocodile who took a very close interest in her. <laughs> and he took her down several times for a death roll and she thought Whoa. that was the end of it. And she survived this extraordinary experience. And while in hospital, wrote one of her seminal essays, <laughs> which was really dealing with the fact that as humans, we are meat. We are meat for other creatures. And that kind of um, reorganisation of your conceptual status um, in the animal kingdom is pretty radical. Um, so, I, yeah, I commend Val to you. <laughs> Thanks, Val. I'll talk to you after. <laughs> Hi. As an American, I've watched the Yellowstone Project with fascination, and you did such a beautiful job of showing how, at the end of your book, where the plant life is coming back. It was just lyrical. It was beautiful. Thank you. But how did you pick Scotland? And is this all in your imagination? Or is there a discussion of such a project happening there? Yeah. So uh, originally, I planned to set the book in Utah in America, which um, because the original idea actually came from when I learned about um, Pando the Trembling Giant, which is this extraordinary um, well, it's the world's oldest and largest living organism. And it's a quaking aspen forest in Utah, which is actually not a forest. It's all one, one tree that's connected by a deep root system. And this ancient, beautiful thing is dying due to human impact. But what would be the kind of perfect, elegant solution would be to reintroduce wolves but that, that w that's never going to happen because of the pushback of the locals. So that, that's where the idea kind of started and triggered me into this whole kind of... took me about 15 minutes, I think, to go, oh, my God, I've got the whole book in my head. <laughs> uh, but then I realised I've never been to Utah. I don't know anything about it. It didn't feel right for me to kind of set a book there. 
so I started to look into this idea of rewilding and wolves and I discovered that in Scotland, which is a place that I really love, um, I have Scottish heritage and I've been there many times, so I feel a connection to the place. Um, it actually is dealing with the very same thing. They, they um, killed all their wolves there uh, decades ago and the ancient Caledonian forests are are dying, uh, shrinking. They've been around since the time of the Ice Age and they're disappearing. And there is, there is currently a lot of discussion there about whether or not they should bring wolves back. Um, it's not looking good. It's not looking like it will happen because, as I mentioned, it's a much smaller place and it's full of sheep and cattle and no fences. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I don't know what the wolves... I think they'd probably run pretty wild, pretty you know, they'd go for it. Uh, but there is definitely something to be said for bringing them back there and, and allowing them to, to kind of bring the landscape back to life. So I just thought, okay, what if that was happening? What would that look like? I love being able to kind of speculate on things like that. Yeah. <laughs> Charlotte. Charlotte, I'd like you to comment on two things, if you could. Did you... Um, draw any inspiration from the early English uh, tales such as Grendel? Um, and secondly, um, do you have a position on the white pointer shark in relation to uh, uh, people uh, resorting to the ocean? Uh, I love sharks. I think we need to uh, respect that the ocean is their habitat and not ours, and I don't think we should be culling them. Uh, and I don't know, I don't think I know the story of Grendel. Uh, can you remind me of that one? It's a long time since I've read it, but um, <laughs> it was, um, it, it's a pre-medieval story yeah. of uh, Grendel who's a monster <clears throat> in traditional terms, but maybe not not really a monster in... Geordie, I think, may know the story. Geordie <laughs> knows everything. I've got to shut up now. No, please. <laughs> Go and read the Seamus Heaney translation. It's absolutely fantastic. Oh, I love Seamus And there was, a, there was a feminist retelling of uh, the, the Grendel story a couple of years ago, which I've only read a little bit of, but it sounds absolutely spectacular too. That is a, an ancient and, and, uh, and, and live story of, uh, I guess, whitefella culture. Um, <laughs> everyone should have a go. <laughs> yeah, great. I mean, there's nothing better than a story about a monster that's not really a monster. <laughs> I think we just love those. <laughs> Hi, I was wondering if you have had any experiences of the wild yourself that makes you so passionate about species extinction? Uh, just a lot of walking and exploring and I grew up my dad's actually got a he's a farmer on the south coast so that's probably why I approached the farming side of things or well, I tried to approach it with a bit of nuance rather than just a sense of good versus evil so I grew up on the south coast um walking through the bush down there walking along the ocean I went exploring the UK uh Iceland looking at all the migratory birds I mean I just uh, yeah, love it. Just really love it. I feel, feel so much more alive um, out in nature. And I think 
we all do in, in that way. We've all got a sense that we can find quiet and peace when we, when we go out into the wild and, and it's just so tragic to kind of... I mean, there's, a, there's actually a, a, a spot um, that I used to go to to watch the birds, the migratory birds, come from uh, the Northern Hemisphere and they would come every single year and then one year they just didn't come and it was so heartbreaking and, yeah, it's, we can see it happening all around us everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> We've run out of time, We're, we're like. all out. I'm so sorry, guys. They were wonderful questions, and thank you so much for coming en masse and hearing Charlotte talk about her book. Please do read her novels. They're absolutely fantastic, and she will be signing them just over there now. So come and, come and grab a copy. Thank you so much, everyone. I really appreciate it.